This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five, check for sound. Four, it's showtime. Three, let's two, go. One, This is the Pro Audio Suite, a podcast for audio and voiceover professionals. Your hosts, Robert Marshall from Source Elements and Someone in Chicago. Darren Robbo-Robertson from Voodoo Sound, Sydney. From LA, George Whittam, the Tech to the VO stars. And myself, Andrew Peters, voice talent and home studio guy from Melbourne. Now, thanks to Rode Microphones, let's get on with the show. Welcome to another Pro Audio Suite. This week we have a special guest coming in from sunny Seattle. It is Brian Schmidt. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Now, I saw you recently um, being interviewed by Warren Hewitt, um, and you were at a conference, which is your conference, which is called Game Sound Con. And the reason you're running that is because you've been doing Game Sound for so long. In fact, you were one of the pioneers. Maybe for anyone that doesn't know you, just give us a bit of a, a background how you got into doing Game Sound. Yeah, um, so I started back in 87, uh, back when sort of it wasn't really a field. And I feel bad, but I just kind of fell into it. Um, I was studying music. I was studying computer science because uh, I'd kind of fallen in love with music technology back when I was in, going to school in Chicago in the mid-80s. And coincidentally, as I was finishing my master's, a job opening appeared at this company called Williams Electronic Games, which made arcade games and pinball machines. And I love pinball. I played pinball my whole life. I'll beat any of your listeners at pinball. <laughs> um, and back then, in order to make sounds for games, whether it was Nintendo games or arcade games, you kind of had to have this esoteric combination of skills of computer programming and being able to make... Uh, these little synthesizer chips inside the game, you know, that, that's where the, where the term chiptunes comes from, these little synthesizer computer chips that are in, literally inside, you know, a Nintendo or a... Game Boy. A arcade game or a pinball machine or a Game Boy. <laughs> yeah. And um, not a lot of people at the time kind of had that combination. So between that and the fact that I love pinball, I got a job at this company, uh, and the next thing I knew, I was writing music for pinball machines. And, you know, sort of unknown is that pinball machines actually have a lot of music. Even back then, they would have 20 to 30 minutes of original score, uh, you know, several minutes of uh, sound design. They're actually fairly complicated things. And the whole arcade games or video games are these are kind of a complete audiovisual package where the the lights are synchronized with the audio and... The, you know, the flashing lights either on the play field or in the scores. So it was kind of this cool mixture of technology and music composition and sound design and multimedia that kind of hooked me back then. And that's kind of what I've been doing since. What do you think was your biggest game hit that you can think of? Like what are a couple of maybe I'd, I'd seen over the years? Uh, probably the biggest, I did uh, John Madden football for a number of years as a consultant. Um, I'm thinking you know, back pinball. in the 90s. Oh, well, pinball. Um, probably the biggest one is a game called Black Knight 2000, okay. uh, which was a, uh, kind of a, this, this rock and rollish soundtrack. And that's a, it's like one of the cool things about that game is it's actually really tightly synchronized with what's going on. Oh, awesome. Um, you know, one, one of the challenges that we have, and you know, one of the reasons, frankly, I started something like Game Sound Con is we have these weird techniques where we try that let us map you know, music, which is this inherently linear thing, right? It goes from point A to point B over a fixed period of time. But we try to map that onto somebody playing a game. And in a game, you don't know when they're going to do what. But you want to give them the illusion that when they're playing it, that what the music they get was scored exactly for the way they happen to be playing the game. Oh, and that man. particular pinball machine, Black Knight 2000, you know, all of the transitions occur at musical boundaries and there are sound effects that will look at the underlying chord of what's going on in the music and will actually transpose themselves to fit harmonically with the music at the moment that it's playing. And so uh, that's one of the reasons that, that probably was one of the, the, the bigger games. That's, that's an application that does that? Or when you're writing the music, you're sort of creating the application that is the music? 
Yeah, what would, and this is, again, the reason that back then you kind of had to have both computer programming skills and music skills. Um, we had a custom little a sequencer built into the, art, into the game itself. And we could add whatever features we thought we would need for that game and add them. So we had a special music score language that we would use. We'd literally, en literally enter them, our music scores in note by note in a text editor. There was, mm -hmm. we didn't use MIDI. Sure. But then we could say, oh, let me put a marker in this score saying what the chord is. And then if we had a sound effect we created, which we also created with these little note lists, because they're also generated by these little synthesizer chips, we could say, oh, before you figure out what notes you're going to play, maybe it's an, arpe an arpeggio, da 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 dum instead of just playing like C-E-G-C, well, look at the music and see what the music marker said the current chord is. Oh, it's E minor. Let's make that E-G-B-E instead of CG, CEGC. Yeah, interesting. So yeah. these sorts of things we could do because we were literally programming the system uh, to do that. And we even had things that said um, we could, in the musical score, put controls in that would flash the lights on the play field or cause things like that to happen. So it was, it was very cool. And that's what I mean by these quirky combinations of music and technology and multimedia and kind of all having it come together. So back in the 80s, were you talking like a Commodore 64 or something like that? What, what sort of computers are we running back then? A little, it was a little bit later than that. So the, the computers that were inside the arcade games are little dedicated custom built computer printed circuit boards. So it wasn't like a, there was no VIC-20 or Commodore 64 inside the game. But it was the same processor that was what a Commodore 64 had as, as like a, a microprocessor chip. Like a Motorola 6800? Uh, yeah, that's very good. Yeah, the Motorola 6800 chip, 6809. Um, the Sega Genesis, the, uh, our console system had a little Z80 processor in it, as well as a 68000 processor, which is what the original Mac had. Oh, that's like a Quadra. I, I, actually, with the Quadra ended with the 68040. Yeah, it's little custom microprocessor chips. So when the... When you were composing music, is it sort of like you have a static track that moves along and then you have these events that on a grid can be triggered by happenings in the game and then those events that are triggered, you can give sort of if-then statements like if you're triggered now, follow this chord. If you're triggered at some other point, follow this other chord. Yeah, and again, you know, th these days uh, you know, in, in modern video games, there, there's lots of different approaches we take for interactive music and one of them is exactly what you were talking about where you... you you know, you create your piece of music, you let the system know what the tempo is, or maybe you put markers in your music that list out appropriate, musically appropriate points to switch music if you need to switch music, you know, from a wandering around stage to a hordes of enemies coming over the hill stage. And then as different game events happen, either things the user does or that maybe AI characters do or, you know, the game just decides to throw some enemies at you, you'd have um, events that trigger these audio events to occur. And then so it's your job to sort of map those game events to these audio events and use whatever information you have about what's the current state of the game to figure out how that should actually sound because it may vary a lot depending upon context. For me, it would be a challenge not being able to hear it all in context because I imagine you're just creating all this stuff separately, correct? Yeah, and and that's the, the definitely the biggest thing uh, that that people who are new to games sort of sort of you know stumble on grasping their head around is that you're creating all of the sound elements that the game is going to need to figure out when and how to play them, and the, and that's just because you can't know in advance exactly when things are going to happen. You know, if, if if I'm firing a gun. Well, the player may be in a narrow hallway with that gun, or they may be in an open field with that gun. And so you, you're not going to put reverb on that gunshot sound ahead of time. Rather, you're going to tell the game, oh, if the player's in a narrow tube, then I want you to apply this reverb, which occurs in the game system itself, and then play that gunshot sound. But the same gunshot sound when the player just walks out of that tube in the open into the open field, now take the reverb off that gunshot sound next time you play it so that it matches whatever environment the player happens to be in. In a similar way, you don't do surround panning as a sound designer when you're doing a game because you don't know 
where that enemy is going to be, or you don't know, you know, what if the player turns their head and now the enemy is behind them where a second ago it was, they were in front of them. So you, you don't set the speaker pan and the volume of that sound directly, but what you do is you give instructions to the game, oh, if the player is here at this XYZ position and the enemy is there at that XYZ position, then the system itself figures out what the speaker pan should be. And then, depending upon how far away they, that enemy is, the sound designer might say, oh, I want you to roll off volume with distance according to this curve that I've specified. So again, the sound designer doesn't specify the volume of the sound or the pan of the sound, but they do have control over how that sound is going to change with azimuth and distance and elevation and so on. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, so it's collecting these pieces, and then the game has to assemble them all at runtime. So if I was playing a game, say, that's like, let's say the Jetsons, right? And, the, and George Jetson is driving in his space car. As he takes off, it might go and then sort of go into a hover fly mode and then as he lands. Are you making those ramp up and ramps down or is that the AI automatically taking the sound that you've created for the car and speeding it up and slowing it down? Right, so what you're doing is you're using some tools to create a sound that has the ability to have the start, the up, sustain for some amount of time, however long it happens to be, and then ramp down. So you're, you're, you probably would create that sound in, a, in, like in three different parts. And then, you, and then you trigger the part that you want to end. Exactly. And a, a more fancy example of that than a, you know, George Judson's car is any car from a current racing game, let's say Forza. It's not uncommon for at any given instant in a racing game for a vehicle to have around 25 to 35 sounds concurrently playing just for that one car. So you might have four different sounds, one for each tire skid that's driven by the physics of the game that's determining how much skid is occurring between the tire and the track. You've got uh, exhaust sounds coming from the exhaust. You've got co interior cockpit sounds. Um, you've got interior engine piston sounds that are maybe being modeled. And all of these things are being controlled by elements of the game. It's, you know, what, what's the player have as far as what gear are they in, what's their throttle position, what kind of braking they're doing, what, what's the road surface like. Can you like hit a button to run out of oil and then you hear all your rings start to screech <laughs> within the pistons? Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if they do that. Um, the, the people who do uh, racing games are very, very proud of the detail they put into their car sounds. I, I, I think that the industries are like colliding. There's plugins, for instance, that are like a, a car. And you, you have the whole engine and you can do some tire noise and it's all parametric, you know, sort of like, um, so here's a car plug-in and you can build car sounds with it, and including automating the RPMs So as, as you're looking at your video. So this is the same thing. It's like there's almost like you could put a VST plug-in inside your game and then just hook up all the controllers to it and here's your... And you're, yeah, you're playing the sound of a car like an instrument. That's exactly what it is, and you know, and and, and you know, frankly, games were doing this 20 years ago. That's kind of how we do sound in games. Yeah, um, is that? And that's a great way to put it. It's these sound modules are instruments that get played, and the input isn't a human controller, or isn't a human being, but it's data from the game representing what's going on in the game. Again, you know, a great example for that for a car is what's the throttle, what's the load on the engine, how much are the tires skidding on the pavement. Those are all pieces of data that get fed into this instrument that then renders the sound of that uh, in real time. So what's the skills then that you have to have? You, you are making the software, I imagine, and you're applying your sounds to the software. It's a combination. In, you know, 20 years ago, you would have to basically write custom computer code for your game to do that. So, right, you, I've, got, I've created these WAV files that I know are the component parts of my, you know, spaceship sound or my, even my just explosion sound. And then I have to write custom computer code to make them play the right way that I want to in response to what's going on. More recently, there are some tools that have developed 
specifically for interactive audio, specifically for game audio. In fact, one's in Melbourne called FMOD. Uh, there's one in Montreal called WISE by a company called Audio Kinetic. And these programs, they take linear content, WAV files that you've created, whether it's in Pro Tools or Logic or, you know, Sonar, whatever you happen, Reaper, whatever you happen to use, and they let you assemble them and map them to things that are going on in the game. So, for example, suppose I've got a spaceship sound or, or, or a weapon sound, and depending upon how charged up the sound, the weapon is, it's got more power. Well, I don't know. There's an infinite range of power-ups that there could be, and so I want to create my weapon sound such that it's a you know, three or four different wave files at play. And depending upon how powered up it happens to be when the guy pulls the trigger, right? It's going depending upon how powered up it is, it's crossfading between a couple of those different waveforms. Maybe it's changing the resonant frequency of a filter. It's open it's making the cue more narrow and sweeping the frequency up as it's charging up. And then when the player decides to hit the trigger, it stops the charging and it makes the uh, the playback sound. So it's those kinds of things that these, uh, we sometimes call it audio middleware. And it's specialized software that looks kind of like a DAW, but is not really a DAW that takes these assets you create and then puts it into a format that allows a game to control it. So in other words, it's what we were talking about before, it's giving the sound designer the ability to make these things into instruments that the game can play. Does each game company or publisher of games have their own tool set that's unique to that company? Like EA has a tool set or you know, Riot Games has a tool set or is it super specific to the game? It's kind of a combination. There are a couple of popular tool sets that get a lot of work done. Again, ones I mentioned before, FMOD and Wise are the biggies. There's a, another one called Fabric. There's one called ADX2. So you can get off-the-shelf tools, and companies big and small will just simply license these off-the-shelf. Some companies also make their own customized tools for very specific needs. Uh, sometimes, again, car game companies will do that. Or if a game a developer simply has something that these off-the-shelf engines uh, don't do quite as well or quite in the way they want. Um, an example of that might be um, a game like Madden, that has very, very specialized dialogue needs, right, in terms of being able to stitch player names smoothly in to game commentary. That's something where they might do a little bit more proprietary tool. And there are also hybrid systems as well. I know um, uh, Blizzard that makes World of Warcraft and Overwatch and those games, they actually license one of these tools. Uh, they license Wise from Audio Kinetic, but they also get the source code to it, and they've hacked on that source code themselves to make it fit their particular needs. So it's kind of all over the map. Does the middleware, when it like from one company or the other, do they all output a common file format or have a like what's the common denominator that makes you have choice between this middleware or that middleware? Uh, there is absolutely no common denominator whatsoever. When you're working on a game, what will happen is the game developer will tell you what tool to use. So they may say, this is our game, we're using Wise, you better know Wise. This is our game, we're using Fabric, you better know Fabric. And the reason for that is, is that the, the, the way the business side of that works is anybody, any, any sound designer or composer can download the full complete version of these tools absolutely for free with no iLocks or no register, nothing. Totally free, not a GIMP version, the whole thing as ships. What they do is they charge the game developer a license fee to ship the game audio engine that will read and process the content created by those tools as part of the game itself. Oh, okay. So, but yeah, anybody can download Wise or FMOD and learn the full thing. It's like the Dolby model. Yeah, it, it, it's the opposite model of sound designer. So as a sound designer, you don't have to pay any money for any game audio tools. That's always paid by the, the game developer. That's very clever, and there, actually. And it's not cheap. For example, if you're, uh, if you're a big title like um, you know, Destiny or Overwatch or something like that and you want to use Wise, it's going to cost you $18,000 to ship that on Xbox. Wow. And it'll cost you another $12,000 if you want to do PlayStation and another 12000 if you want to do Nintendo. But it's all totally free to the sound designer. 
Which is a great idea because it allows sound designers to learn their craft without having to invest huge amounts of money to have the tools to do it. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that's kind of interesting that's uh, you know funky when you think about it is, and this started happening about five or six years ago, is the middleware companies changed their licensing model where depending upon how big a company you are, they'll charge you different amounts of money. So if you are, you know, your buddy and your artist buddy eating tuna fish and making a video game for no money, you can actually use these tools for free. And if you're, you know, have a small budget, you can use it for a few hundred dollars. But if you're making a billion dollar title, yeah, now they're going to charge you some serious money for it. That's that's a lot the way the software industry works. Yeah, well, it's sort of like uh, the Reaper license, right? There's the student license and there's the pro license, although you know they're both actually pretty affordable. But, well, even even Fraunhofer works in a similar way. When we license MPEG four from Fraunhofer, they kind of do the same thing. You know, like we want a license, and they're like, "Well, who are you? What are you going to use it for?" And then they come up with a price, and it's all negotiated a lot, yeah. a lot of the times. Um, something that interests me is. The soft, the FMOD software and, and the other one that we're talking about, is it easy to pick up or is, is it something you've really got to sit down and get your head around? It, it kind of depends on the sound. Um, and as an example, um, it's pretty rare that a game sound effect is just a wave file that gets rendered out. Um, even something as simple as an explosion sound you won't create an explosion sound in Pro Tools, mix it down, you know, have it be a single wave file and just bring that into the game. Much more likely in games is your explosion sound will be a boom, uh, so you'll have these different elements and you leave them as separate elements. So you may create those separate elements in Pro Tools or SoundForge or Audacity or whatever. But are those elements whatever. wave files? Yeah, those elements would be wave files most of the time. Right. So you've got these, you know, elements of your explosion or your gunshot sound, um, you know, as let's say four or five separate wave files representing different aspects of the sound, and you'll bring it into one of these game audio tools. And what the game engine will do then is, when an explosion occurs, it'll send a message to this game audio engine saying, hey, I have an explosion. And the game audio engine will say, oh, I know how to make an explosion. It's these four wave files. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to randomly set the pitch and um, filter of each of them before I play them back. And I'm also going to stagger them by a little bit of randomness in time. Now, all of a sudden, you have an explosion sound that doesn't necessarily sound exactly the same every time it plays. And in fact, it may go one level further where you may have this the low boom of the explosion, but you may have four different versions of that boom, four different versions of that crack of the explosion, four different versions of the debris sound. And now not only are you varying the pitch of those, but you're varying the waveform selection itself. And now you have a really rich explosion sound that doesn't sound the same every time it, it occurs. So that's one of these things. These, And that's, you know, Wise will do that and FMOD will do that and Fabric will do that. So once you learn that, hey, one of these things these game audio tools need to do is let me create a sound effect out of constituent parts and set randomization on it so I don't get the same gunshot every time, then it becomes easier to understand how, you know, how to use these tools. We were talking about learning curve a second ago. So that's kind of the basic idea. How much of it is like the game engine is the synthesis engine, literally maybe like LFOs and the whole deal, and how much of it is waveform playback? from wave files and mixing and DSP in, in that terms? That's a really good question. Um, and it kind of depends on the needs of the game, right? The, the basic answer is in, in games, we tend to, if we can do it late in the game, we would do it in the game. An example would be, you know, suppose I've got a, a game where uh, there's, you're in space and there's dialogue. And if the helmet is on... Uh, then the sound of the dialogue should be radioized, and if the helmet is off, then it shouldn't. Then it's just normal, non-processed voice. Shouldn't it be if the helmet's on, you can hear them, and if the helmet's off, you can't hear them? Well, or if, if the helmet is on, then you're communicating <laughs> via a radio, so it's going to sound radioized. If the helmet's off and you're standing next to them, then it's not going to sound radioized. It'll just sound like you're standing next to them. Well, what we'll do is we'll just record all the voice without any radio effects at all. 
but apply the radioization effect as a real-time DSP effect inside the game itself. And that way we have the flexibility, you know, first of all, the game rules to change if, you know, depending on when you can take your helmet and when you can't, or if, you know, you decide to take your helmet off mid-sentence, it will still sound natural. So in general, we try to do stuff in the game engine itself and not do as much processing ahead of time, you know, in Pro Tools and whatnot. That's not a hard and fast rule, and there's some things that you have awesome convolution reverbs or something like that that you want to be doing, and you might process some stuff ahead of time. But in general, it gives you more flexibility as a game sound designer to do that ahead of time. Because then what happens is, suppose now you're in the polishing phase where you're trying to make sure your sounds are really appropriate, or that the reverb is right, or that the kind of compression and filtering you have for your radioization effect is right, you can actually sit up with these tools and be running the game on one screen, you run the tool on the other screen, and modify these parameters as the game is playing, and, and kind of mix it. But how much, is it, how much is actually synthesized compared to how much is playback? You know, for instance, you think about the old, old games, the Nintendo games, and some of the charm of those is that the sequencers were literally little waveform generators, and that's like... So how much of that legacy of synthesizing the sound within the game carries on to these days? Or is it more waveform playback uh, and mixing and not as much synth? That's a really good question, too. Um, we've kind of moved, for the most part away from the synthesis model and to the playing back of waveforms model. You know, certainly for music, we've done that, right? It's, um, it's not unheard of, but it's relatively rare to have music generated on the fly. We usually go into the studio now and record, you know, full orchestras or rock bands or hip-hop artists or whatever it happens to be. I take it back. There, there, are, there are some games out there that's, that will do the, the current synthesized music is a really great it, very nice interactive game called Peggle 2 super popular by Electronic Arts you know one of the things that we all kind of lament in game audio is that when we were doing synthesis like you mentioned because we were synthesizing the score on the fly we could do things creatively that we can't you can't do if you have a pre-rendered wave file you know even something as simple as um, changing the tempo when you're generating your music via synthesizers, you can simply speed up the tempo. You know, maybe you're, maybe there's something you have to do and time's running out, and so you make the music go faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. faster. Um, you can't do that with a piece of music you record in the studio. But that said, the trend really has been towards more wave file playback and not as, not as much synthesis. It's, it's kind of, an, it's more unusual to have pure synthesis uh, than careful sequencing and DSP effects on linear wave files being played back. Sure, I mean you could you could give each room in a game its impulse and put an impulse reverb right into the game, and now just whatever you throw into that impulse reverb, you know if you walk out of that room, well, like you start crossfading impulses. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, that's a very common thing, especially in VR these days. Uh, almost all VR games have the ability to have runtime convolution reverbs running in the game itself. And so as, uh, in fact, they may might do more than just a convolution reverb because a convolution reverb is an impulse response from a specific location in the room of the impulse and the microphone that records the impulse. Well, if I'm in a VR game or something like that and... I wa I'm walking around, and now I'm right next to a cement wall. I'm going to want to hear that slapback echo. And so uh, there are game audio technologies that will look at the geometry of the room you're in and give you the slapback when you're right next to the cement wall, but as you walk farther from the wall, the reverb changes in the way that it would change if, as if you had recorded you know, dozens or hundreds of impulses within this space. It's also obviously changing not only the reverb, but it's also got to be changing the pan and the, the volume and everything, correct? Well, you're changing the pan, you're changing the volume, you're changing the Doppler shift of the individual reflections as you're walking around. So right, if I'm walking towards a wall and speaking, or, or an object is in front of me making noise, and it's moving away from me towards the wall, 
the direct path of that sound is going to be Doppler shifted down, but the reflected sound off that wall in front of me is going to be Doppler shifted up. And again, that's something now a sound designer is going to set. The sound designer won't record the sound with Doppler, but they will give instructions to this middleware that says, oh, if you're moving this fast, put this much Doppler on it. If you're moving this fast, put more Doppler on it. If you're moving slower, put less Doppler on it. Wow, that really adds an incredible amount of realism. That's just amazing. And and think about how crazy this all gets if you inject Dolby Atmos and its objects yes. into a game <laughs> that has objects in it inherently. Atmos is, you know, we sort of joke in games that, you know, because games have been doing object-oriented audio since there were 3D games. That's been 25 years now. And it's, in, in a sense, because we were forced to because the game engine knows where the, the listener is, where the player is, and it knows where all the objects in the game are. The enemies, the helicopters, the puppy dogs, the, you know, the, the laser guns, the cannons, whatever. And so we've always had to do sound as object-based object 3D. And it's kind of been fun to see things like Atmos occur. It's like, oh, linear media is now starting to do object-based 3D as well, and so it's that's nice kind of seeing that bit of convergence going on. Are you familiar with Max? It's a program that lets you basically create anything you want using MIDI, sort of as a, MIDI and audio as its backbone language. Yeah, it, it, and it solves similar kinds of problems, right? The idea is you've got sounds coming from somewhere, whether they're synthesized through oscillators or their wave files being played back, and you have external controls, which, you know, for a musical instrument would be, you know, breath pressure or fingering information or something like that, or MIDI key number, velocity and stuff. But in a game, just replace MIDI key number and velocity with game event and parameters associated with that sound. Again, you know, wish I could think of less violent examples. So if you have, <laughs> yeah. you know, a, a sword fight, you've got a sword sound but now you also have information as to how hard, what's the velocity those swords hit each other with. And so you use these max MSP-like constructs to be able to say, oh, based upon what the velocity, you know, how hard did these swords hit each other, I'm going to pick a wave file that's appropriate, and I'm also going to throw some DSP effect on it to maybe, you know, make it shing more or less, depending upon whether it was a direct blow or a glancing blow um, and things like that. With games, what about how do you go with um, human dialogue? Are you involved in much of that? Yeah, dialogue is obviously a very interesting uh you know, challenge one is the sheer size and scope of dialogue in modern-day video games is huge. A typical AAA video game, you know, big-budget game, may have fifty to seventy thousand lines of dialogue. By comparison, a typical feature film is maybe two thousand to twenty-five hundred. Wow. And the most recent Star Wars game, if you add on all the add-on packs, has over three hundred and seventeen thousand lines of dialogue. So, just as a data management problem and keeping track of wave file names. And I mean, it, that in itself is a bit of a nightmare. Um, but there's another problem that uh, games have started doing a better job with, and that is simply dialogue in context. There's a great game, and you can see video examples of this on YouTube, of the most recent Spider-Man game by, uh, by Sony. And for all the Peter Parker dialogue, or, or certainly a good number of it, they actually recorded two completely separate performances of the Peter Par Parker dialogue for each dialogue line. One dialogue line for if Peter is just kind of hanging around, and another line of dialogue if Peter Parker is either fighting or swinging as Spider-Man. And so the game will trigger off the, di the appropriate line of dialogue depending upon what Peter Parker is doing. And the cool thing, too, that they do is if Peter Parker is in the middle of delivering a line of dialogue and he starts swinging, they'll switch to the inflection that's more energetic. So it's, you know, those are the kinds of things, again, we, we have in games. Because Peter Parker, he, he has to deliver these lines of dialogue because they're part of the narrative. But you don't know what Peter's doing because that's up to the player. The player is controlling Peter Parker.
Is there a special line for if Peter Parker pecks a pepper? piece of pickled pepper? <laughs> yeah, I was stumbling, not trying very hard not to stumble over my tongue as I was talking about Peter Parker and Pepper Pot. Peter Parker, yeah, Pepper Pot. It's like velocity yes. layers for dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's it's like the dialogue is recorded in velocity layers, the way you do a piano. Yep, that's that's a, that's a really good analogy. With the exception that um, in the middle of a sustained note, you can suddenly change to the uh, a, a Other different uh, articulation. So I, I'd like to pick you up on something you mentioned in there. Naming conventions, are they, are they something that varies from game to game or is there an industry convention in the way you name all these files or how does that work? Naming conventions is all over the map and it's something that, um, yeah, it's one of the first things you want to... Uh, as a you know an audio designer on a game, if if you're the audio lead or the audio director responsible for this, you want to make sure that from the get go you have some very clear naming conventions, so that uh, again it's very easy to get confused when you've got tens of thousands of lines of dialogue or you know thousands of sound effects that go into a game and may be called at different points of time in the game. So yeah, that's something you have to coordinate across the whole team. Anybody you know the people creating the resources, the people programming the resources into the game. It's a very unsexy thing, but uh, it's also really essential. It's, I was at, um, at GameSoundCon a couple years ago. We uh, ended the show with an audio director's roundtable where we had the top audio leads from you know, Blizzard and Bungie and um, Electronic Arts. You know, Somebody in the crowd raised their hand. It's like, hey, you know, what, what software do, should I learn as a, somebody who wants to do game audio? And I think they were expecting, you know, oh, Pro Tools or Logic or Reaper or something like that. And every one of the directors said Excel. <laughs> yes, so, that's right. Because right. As, as a game audio, as, as somebody yeah. working on game audio, I can guarantee you, you will spend a lot of time in spreadsheets. Yeah, bad. Yep. So how yeah, detailed yeah. are those spreadsheets? Do they come down to time, like length and, and name and... The whole lot. Oh no, uh, there's there's lots of lots of detail in these spreadsheets, and it, this this varies by team. But you want to obviously track, you know, what the game event is supposed to be, the trigger, the sound, what the sound is called in the game engine, what's the status of that sound, right? Has it been put in the game properly? Um, has it been tested to make sure it works right? You probably don't have a duration. You might have some information as to what kinds of parameter controls it has. Again, an engine sound is going to have a, a throttle value, a gear shift value, and maybe an engine load value. So those would be documented in the spreadsheet. You might have timing if it's a dialogue and has to be concatenated in terms of are you going to cut it short if it's going to be used as a word that is the first word in a sentence or the last word in a sentence. Um, things like that. I've noticed actually uh, as, a, as a spectator of uh, Xbox, because my son loves to play his Xbox, is uh, Fortnite. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, the voices and the, the dialogue is actually background anyway. But the thing I'm fascinated by, and I could be wrong, but it, to me, uh, the characters sound like they're all South African. <laughs> does, does that make any sense to you? Is there a reason why they would be South African? I Not that I am aware of. It's like they're trying to be neutral. They're, they're, or is it because getting South African talent is non-union and cheaper? My guess is that's not it because the um, in in the U.S. certainly the video the large video game companies again of which Epic is certainly one. You know there is a standard SAG after contract for uh, video games and alternative media, and it's not prohibitively expensive. So I'm not. Uh, yeah, that that I don't know. I now you have me wondering, and I think I'll dig into some of my friends at uh, at Epic to see what the scoop is with that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. But the thing, the, fact, the thing that's interesting for me as far as um, games are concerned, I mean, the two biggest areas for voiceover, I would say currently, would be audiobooks and games. Yeah, I think, I think so, very much so. Um, and again, you know, games runs the gamut, right? Um, you know, I did a game for Zynga a couple years ago called Zynga Bingo, and it didn't have any some deep narrative story, but I needed some voiceover talent to record B-17. So it ranges from small things like that to very large narrative stories where, again, you've got thousands and thousands of lines of dialogue and dozens of characters. So there's, there's definitely a lot of work over, you know. We, we sometimes think of games as only being the Fortnites and the Destiny 2s and so on, but there's tons of other games out there. 
you know, I guess, I guess the equivalent of if we thought of only media, visual media as only being blockbuster motion pictures released in the theater. Well, there's television series, there's TV commercials, there's web series, there's corporate videos, there's all these other things that, uh, that there are out there. So there's this giant, giant range of games. And a lot of them are in sort of that mid-tier range these days where they're, no, they're not a $100 million budget Mortal Kombat 11, but it's a $4 million budget mobile game that you know still needs 60 minutes of music that's well-produced and well-recorded. And no, it's not going to have 80,000 lines of dialogue, but it's got 3,000 lines of dialogue. So there's, there's a lot of that kind of work out there, too. If the developers work in sprints, is it similar to like... Um, um, which is yes. uh, sprints, for people who don't know it, is a very, very common way of doing software development. And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, one of the things that... Um, again, we also talk about this at GameSoundCon, is that when you're on a game team, you're working really on a software team, on a product whose industry grew up in the software industry. So you've got sprints, which is, a again, these process called agile development, where you break work into little chunks. Uh, so you have sprints, you have stand-ups, you have Jira bug tracking, you have regression tests, you have all of these things that somebody who came from, you know, being a program at Oracle is totally familiar with, but a composer who's only worked on television series has probably never, you know, may have not heard of a sprint or certainly maybe doesn't use Jira to track their bugs. So there's this notion of what it's like to work on a software team and a software mindset. That's one of the biggest sort of production slash business differences between games and traditional film is this yep, we're in software and we have to put sound into a game, you're not necessarily done. Somebody has to test it to make sure it works properly under all circumstances. There's no such thing as software that is shipped without bugs, and that includes, there are sometimes audio bugs, where the, you know, the, the RPM value isn't hooked properly up to the engine sound, or the tire skid sounds, um, the, the wrong sounds being made, because the programmer misread a spreadsheet item or something like that. And these get entered and they, they get fixed by somebody. Um, but yeah, it's a different kind of thing than saying, oh, I've got my finished linear media, let me just put my sounds on it and I'm kind of done. It's an absolutely fascinating industry. It's, it's it, like it's completely mind-blowing, actually, I must admit, for someone like myself. But, uh, but part of your career has now led you to uh, GameSoundCon, um, which I think you ran last month from memory. Yeah, it's the end of October. Uh, yeah. So you do that annually, is that correct? Yep, uh, we do that once a year. Um, when I left Microsoft, which was 11 years ago now, um, you know, I sort of had a put together a three or four point business plan for what I wanted to do with my life. And I mean, I still do content, you know, just finished a, a big update for Mutant Football League, which is uh, kind of a fun game. But also, I, I've always loved teaching. Uh, both my parents were music teachers. And again, what I had seen was a lot of people coming from traditional media for the first time getting into games, and they were you know, bumping into these problems, that just stuff they didn't understand, like what are, what are their technical limitations of what we do? The business side of game audio is pretty different for the most part than how composers will get paid for... Uh, either music or doing music for linear media like film or TV or something like that. And so the idea was to kind of have a, you know, one place over a couple of days where people could, you know, drink from the fire hose of what it's like to work on games for the business, the creative, the technical challenges that we have in games that don't really pop up quite so much in more traditional media. And what sort of people do you get to GameSoundCon? Uh, these days it's a mix. Um, so we, we've, we've grown, right? Back in the, the, the first one, it was really almost all people from TV and film. I think there were about 40, 45 attendees that came. These days, we're about split between very, very experienced game audio people and composers and sound designers from more traditional media. We got about 10% students. Um, we also get some researchers who were, uh, you know, academic researchers who were either studying game music from an academic perspective. Uh, you know, somebody might do like a Shankarian analysis of Koji Kondo's 
second Mario game or something like that. Or also researchers on cutting-edge technologies. We had a couple sessions last year about machine learning as applied to video game sound synthesis. So it's, we kind of get this eclectic mix of people, but at, at the core, it's uh, working game audio professionals as well as professionals in traditional media, sound designers, composers, directors, and so on. Also voiceover specialists who either want to learn more about games for the first time or also now share lessons and tricks and tips or post-mortems on sort of much more advanced te technologies or more advanced topics in game audio. And it's, it's really just everybody geeking out about music and tech and cool stuff that we do kind of pushing them together. Everybody's kind of a game, a, a music tech nerd at some level that comes to game sound con. So do voiceover artists need any other skills than their usual ones to become good at doing games? Is it, is it a different kettle of fish? Uh, yeah. It, games are a little bit challenging for a couple reasons for, uh, for a voiceover artist. Um, one is simply obviously we talked about the sheer amount of content, you know, plus if you've got content shipping over a number of months, right? We constantly have updates to video games over months, sometimes lasting years. So making sure you don't have character drift over, you know, successive sessions and stuff, that's, that's sort of bread and butter. A lot of times in video games, they're very secretive and you're not really told much or anything about the character until you get to the session. And even then you may only be told a small part of it. Uh, because the development of video games is so much longer than, you know, production to post-production for a film, the studios seem to be very, very concerned that a lot of stuff is really on a need-to-know basis. So being able to direct, you know, create a great performance under those circumstances uh, is interesting. Um, I was going to say you're more likely to do mocap, but these days uh, you're just as likely to do mocap uh, in traditional media as well. One thing that is common in video games, probably more so than in traditional media, is vocally stressful sessions where you've got a grunts and exertion sounds. Um, remember when I was, uh, or dog barks, for example. Um, and, and right, we talked about um, you know having variations of sound so that things aren't as repetitive. Well, what that, that applies to dialogue as well. So you're not going to have just one die sound for the scene. They might want 10 die sounds for the same scene so that as the person plays the game over and over again, they're not hearing exactly the same die sound over and over again. So those sorts of vocal stress uh, can, can be problematic too. Yeah, I know a lot of uh, actors uh, went on strike a couple of years back. Yeah, it was game sound. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, game audio, game sound, uh, the SAG after definitely went on strike a couple of years ago and they came up with a, a compromise contract that um, gives them kind of is a, is a split somewhere in the middle there. I don't recall the details exactly of what it was, but it, those were some of the issues, vocally stressful sessions, the fact, right, that if a voice talent has a video game session at, you know, a, a four hour session in the morning, they kind of can't book an afternoon session because their voice might be... Uh, Shot, Shot to pieces. Destroyed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do, with the sessions, do you, uh, you obviously record dialogue as well. Do you do that uh, in your studio or do you tend to do things remotely? If I've got a little, little, tiny, tiny thing, I might just do it at home in my studio. Um, a lot of uh, game VO talents, they'll have vocal booths in their house. Um, and in fact, you know, it's, I love it when... Uh, voice talent has a vocal booth in their house because then they're all set up, they're ready to go. How, how, how do you typically monitor or record those sessions? I'll, we'll have some either a, either Skype uh, on a non-fan device like an iPad and it'll just be in the, in the room with them. And so, you know, I can give feedback right then and there while they're doing the session. It's pretty straightforward. For larger games, obviously we'll bump it, go into the studio and there'll be a, a proper recording engineer and... Uh, and the whole nine yards, but so again, it kind of depends on the style of game. So even in, even in the studios, are you doing like remote connections? Um, no, uh, I mostly do again Skype for it because I don't really care so much about the fidelity as I do the performance because I know the, the fidelity is captured 
buy the person's equipment properly, but I do care about the performance and I want to see the performance. And it, you know, it's not essential that I have ultra, ultra low latency, as long as I can have a conversation with the talent as they're doing their recording, then, then I'm fine with that. Do you, do you find that you're trying to keep track of the takes and then you spend a lot of time later when you get the file trying to find the same takes or matching up to your notes compared to just cutting things in real time and going, that's what I want. Uh, that's one of the, what's one of the reasons that if something gets above a big size, which for me is not that big, I'll have, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, there's either a recording engineer or that again, uh, if the voice talent has a studio in their house, a lot of time they'll have somebody else running the pro tool session that will keep track of those things. And for, uh, some studios, Again, because games are so big, they have custom audio tools that are designed in-house uh, for them specifically to use. That heard about this one tool. I forgot what studio it has, but it's a it's a three-screen system where there's you know an iPad in the booth with the talent. There's one screen that's for the engineer, and there's one screen for the director, and they're all connected. And so the director can easily keep track of takes that they like while the engineer gets the information they need and the talent only, you know, can see animations or visuals for the characters themselves. So some of them are pretty sophisticated. But again, it's, it's such a, a niche thing that these tend to be tools that are custom written over a period of time by an individual studio. Well, I've got to say... Um this has been absolutely fascinating, and uh, it's an area that a lot of us um, wouldn't have that much information about. Yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff that you don't really think about what goes into it. Um, well, knowing it's free, I'm actually going off to download FMOD now. Oh, <laughs> FMOD or Wise, yeah, they're both free, the full, the full thing. Uh, Wise is awesome in that it has a bunch of tutorials online. You can actually get self-certified. Again, if you keep in mind the sort of creative problems they're trying to solve, which are... Right? In games, we don't have precognition, so we know what can happen, we just don't know when and how it can happen. And we also don't always want it to sound exactly the same. And these tools let us set up either with dialogue, either with sound design, sound effects, or with music, the ability to deliver a soundtrack and specify as how a game should sound given that we don't know in advance exactly what's going to happen. Really cool, I have to say. Fascinating. Well, we should let you get on because it's otherwise it's going to be very sleepless in Seattle. Oh. Boom, Tish. <laughs> it's only 7 o'clock here, not too bad. Well, Brian, thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, yeah. Good luck. I was going to say good luck with everything you do, but you probably don't need good luck because you've already done it all. Um, and um, but, but certainly good luck with Game Sound Con. Oh, uh, yeah. We're, uh, you know, next October in L.A. is uh, when we plan to have it. So always happy to, uh, to have people. This show was mixed by Voodoo Sound. Edit by Andrew Peters using Source Connect Now and Rode microphones with technical support from George the Tech Whittem. Don't forget to subscribe and like us. You're not for trouble.